Well, over the next three weeks, I'm hoping to be covering Isaiah 42, the first nine verses, the first of the four servant songs in Isaiah. did wonder when Billy read it on Sunday morning if he was going to do it all, but he just prepared the way, I think. He did a John the Baptist for me and said a few things, uh, but in, in small detail. Uh, so we're going to read this great uh, passage, obviously about the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sure we're all aware of that. Uh, Isaiah 42 in the first nine verses, but we're only going to probably look at verse 1 this evening for reasons that hopefully will become apparent. <coughs> Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, this is the Lord speaking, obviously. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastland shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, <clears throat> those who sit in darkness from the prison house, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare, before they spring forth I tell you of them. The context of this passage is that in Isaiah 40 there has been the prophecy of John the Baptist coming, and then of him preparing the way for the Lord Jesus who comes as but he was saying the other day, verse 11 of chapter 40, and he comes and feeds his flock as a shepherd and carries his people. But there's also the context of Isaiah 41, particularly towards the end from verse 21 to verse 29, where the Lord is basically saying to the idols, uh, you tell the future then if you can, because I'm going to tell what's going to happen and you can't do that. And I am the Lord, and as it says here, he will not give his glory to another verse 8. That's, that's the context of all of it. But this week I really just want to come to verse 1. That wasn't my plan when I sat down to prepare it, but there's so much here that I thought it, it, it would be pushing it to go beyond. And even that first word, or you have to take it with what comes afterwards, behold my servant. Of course, we read of John the Baptist, don't we, who prophesied in chapter 40, and he stands there, John 1 and verse 29, he sees the Lord Jesus coming toward him physically and he can say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He, he really means, behold him, there he is, look at him. Isaiah, this is a prophetic behold, isn't it? This is the God saying to the people, look forward to my servant who is coming. And this is quoted in Matthew 12, I'll look at that, verses 18 to 20, Billy mentioned this again the other day, as fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly uh, those verses uh, later on are quoted. 
And so we know it's the Lord Jesus. And there's another behold I want to get you to behold in chapter 52 and verse 13, the fourth of the servant songs, chapters 49, chapter 50, and then 53, but it begins at 52, 13, and it begins, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. And this word is, or every word is from the mouth of God, isn't it, in the scripture. This word is clearly meant to say, of course we have to listen to everything God says, but particular attention is being drawn here. Behold. And we are those who cannot behold Christ in the flesh, can we? But we are still those who behold him. First Peter 1 and verse 7 at the end speaks of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's because we can, by God's grace through faith, spiritually behold Christ here, now in our own minds and hearts, that we're able to sing the hymn we sang and many others, name of Jesus, highest name, and and how we, we feed on him. And the Christian, any Christian should be, shouldn't they, someone who is much in beholding Christ, much in beholding him in love by faith, meditating upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to do that through the scripture. Uh, it's not to sit, uh, meditation is a word that is as long as a piece of string. Uh, scriptural meditation means you think on things that are, are true and you, you meditate on their implications. And when we come to meditate on Christ, we say, well, how do we know anything about him? We know about him through the scripture. And so we need, when we meditate on Christ, we don't have to have your Bible open, though it's good to do that, but you could, if you know Bible texts, you can meditate upon them uh, without the Bible being open at all. But the point is uh, that one error is to just sort of say, I'm meditating when Scripture is not controlling your thinking. And the other error is to just meditate on truth rather than on the person. And that is what, what we must avoid, that, that we fall short, uh, that we can study the scriptures and learn a lot of things and be able to put them together coherently in our mind, perhaps explain them to other people. And we spend perhaps, I hope you spend as much time as, as, as you can, uh, studying the scripture, meditating on it, but it's all really in vain if the centre of our meditation and is not the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you how how much proportion uh, you should think of him. But you should be, it's much in the Gospels, as I said the other week, in different contexts. Uh, and, and much thinking of him. It is looking to Christ that we are made like him, we're told, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. We behold him as with an unveiled face, and that transforms us. And so we should, this Verse reminds us, stirs us up, behold my servant, think on Christ. My servant, well, why is this term used? Uh, And it's frequently used here in Isaiah. Well, it reminds us, doesn't it? Here is one who is truly man. My servant, God's servant, behold, I've sent him, but he has come as man. 
He has come to do the Father's will. In Philippians we're told, aren't we, that he came, he was the one who did not consider, was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men and then dying on the cross in obedience to the Father's will. The servant. And it's interesting that when uh, Peter uh, preaches not on Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, but in Acts 3, after the lame man has been healed in the temple, and they say, how did, how did you do that, Peter? And he says, it wasn't me, it wasn't us, me and John, John and I. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, this is Acts 3.13, glorified his servant Jesus. Then he speaks much more about Christ, but right at the end again, in verse 26, to you first God, having raised up his servant Jesus. You see, it's unmissable for his audience. They know full well what Peter is saying. He is saying, God kept promising his servant to come. Jesus of Nazareth is that man. He has fulfilled all these prophecies. He is the one of whom Isaiah spoke. Interestingly, in between, in Acts, uh, Peter calls him the holy and just one, verse 14, the prince of life, or maybe the originator of life, the author of life, verse 15. Uh, he calls him Christ in verse 18. In verse 20, he calls him uh, Jesus Christ, and in verses 22 to 23, he says he's the one of whom Moses spoke as the prophet. So he gives him lots of titles, but he begins and ends with servant. My servant, the one who came to serve the Father. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if any of you uh, know, I'm going to quote from it a couple of times, or three times possibly, uh, if I remember, uh, from the hymn, I don't know if any of you know it. Uh, who knows the hymn, I have a friend whose faithful love is more than all the world to me. Rose does. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we've sung it. Well, there's no one to learn. But let me quote verse 2. This is him, 225, if you want. You don't have to look it up. He held the highest place above, adored by all the sons of flame. Yet such his self-denying love, he laid aside his crown and came to seek the lost. And at the cost of heavenly rank and earthly fame, he sought me. Blessed be his name. That's the Lord Jesus whom God says, I uphold. Whom I uphold. Whom I, whom I uphold. Uh, Jesus given strength by the Father to do the Father's will. And to finish it. The work of verses 6 and 7, there to go and be a covenant to the people, a light to the Gentiles, to, to bring people out of darkness into light and out of prison, as it were. Uh, and... God says, I will give him strength, my servant. He's not on his own. I will uphold him while he does everything I've sent him to do. The active obedience, as we call it, of Christ, to keep God's law and to be sinless in all his dealings with people and indeed within himself, despite all the temptations and all the trials that he had. The active obedience of Christ. Upheld by God. It was a lonely path he trod from every human soul apart. Known only to himself and God was all the grief that filled his heart. Yet from the track he turned not back. 
To where I lay in want and shame, he found me. Blessed be his name. The active obedience and the passive obedience. Christ dying on the cross as God's servant, in obedience to the Father, obedient up to, as it really means, Philippians 2, 7, up to the point of death. Passively obeying, suffering as a sin bearer. Upheld, as uh, we, we must remember, upheld even upon the cross. Whom I uphold, says God. Upheld to suffer everything that the Father laid upon him for us and to do it sinlessly and successfully. To bear what he had to bear upon the cross. Or, last quote from this hymn, Then dawned at last that day of dread when desolate but undismayed, with wearied frame and thorn-crowned head, he, now forsaken and betrayed, went up for me to Calvary. And dying there in grief and shame, he saved me. Blessed be his name. We need to meditate on my servant whom I uphold. And God goes on, my elect one in whom my soul delights. When the Lord Jesus came to be baptised of John, which greatly surprised John. uh, And he said, (laughs) you should be baptising me. And the Lord Jesus said, no, it's fitting this way to Fulfill all righteousness. And then in, this is Matthew 3 verse 16, when he had been baptised, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and then we read of the Spirit coming upon him, and we're going to come back to that. But in verse 17, suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This one. God pointing him out. This is God's behold, isn't it? This is the what God is saying at the baptism of Jesus as the voice comes from heaven and the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. The whole trinity is there. The Father is saying, this is the man chosen. This is the man chosen by me as my servant. You are expecting a servant. You're, you're looking for him. You're looking for the Messiah. This is him. And he's not just my servant, he is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the prophecy is fulfilled. God says it's fulfilled in him, but he's not just my servant. He is the son of God. The one, he says, in whom my soul delights. But before that, we think, don't we, and we read often in the scripture of of being the elect, the chosen of God, those Words come more than 40 times in the New Testament. But how are, we, how are we elect? Well, because God chose us, yes. But how do we gain the benefits of God's election to salvation? We gain them when we are brought into Christ. He is the one in whom all God's elect are elect. God has chosen him to be the one in whom we can be chosen to share the benefits of his Life and death, his righteousness and his blood. And therefore the Father delights in him. My elect one in whom my soul delights because he has accomplished the will of the Father. So the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is, behold, as it were, this one, 
This is my son, in whom my soul delights, which is not just saying, is it, uh, now, as a man. This is God who has become man, and he is the one in whom the Father's soul has always delighted. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there he is, with God, face to face with God, as the word means. Uh, And in mutual delight from all eternity. And we can't think of eternity backwards, it boggles the mind, doesn't it? But, But always in the presence of the Father, always delighted in by the Father. And that didn't stop when he came to earth. And the Father pronounces that at his baptism, and then when you move, uh, Jesus is, it's a fascinating study to do. Someone has, I know, at least one book written about it, but many years ago, on the self-consciousness of Jesus uh, and what he knew of himself and who he is and and why he was here. And I can't go into all that now. But in John 8 and verse 28, he says... uh, The Lord Jesus says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. This is a servant, isn't it? But as my Father taught me, I speak these things, and he who has sent me, there's a service, is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Morally, always doing what the Father had told him to do, sinlessly serving the Father. And more, doing all the things God had commanded him. John 17, verse 5, I have glorified you, says Christ to the Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Faithful to God's commands. The Father delights in him. Put this into the side in, I've got time. To, it's, it's not really off, off, off the subject, but think of this. When the Lord Jesus was on earth and he obeyed the Father and he went to the cross and he died and then he rose again. In John 10 verse 18, he speaks of this. And this is, you see, isn't it? The Father delighting him because he always does what pleases him. No one takes it from me, my life, but I lay it down of myself. I have authority, that's how the word should read, to lay it down and I have authority to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And you might think, it's a strange word. Why does God have to command Christ to rise? Well, think about it. Here's the Lord Jesus who has endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. To the point where they have taken him and nailed him to a cross and he has borne the wrath of the Father and he has died and his spirit has gone to the Father into your hand I commit my spirit and his body is in the tomb and the command is go back there. I don't know, you can. I'm sure we can all think of places that we might have been to where we've had horrible experiences and we'll say I'm never going back there. Think of the Lord Jesus coming back to this earth, rising and dealing with his disciples over a period of 40 days. He, the place where he was crucified, he po- quite possibly walked past the spot where he was crucified. This is humility, isn't it? 
This is the servant mentality still. He is still the servant. Now he is ascended and glorified. But, but we, I think perhaps that just helps us to understand the depth of the, the obedience to the Father and the cost of that obedience. And then we move on. I have put my spirit upon him. A prophecy, as we've said, was visibly fulfilled at the baptism of Jesus together with that declaration, he is the one in whom I am, my, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. The two declarations come the other way round when they were fulfilled. My elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him because that was visibly seen. And that means, what does that mean? Well, very briefly, it means this and much else. It means that even if we don't go outside the confines of the prophecy of Isaiah, we read in Isaiah 11 and verse, from verse 1 to verse 3, first part of verse 3, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. This is clearly, isn't it, the Lord Jesus. Uh, Jesse was David's father. This is great David's greater son. And a branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. Not preaching Isaiah 11 uh, tonight. But, but there is, that is the, what, that's all said of the effects of the Holy Spirit. The perfect internal equipping by the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus, to do what is here in verse in Isaiah 42, and what is in Isaiah 61, which clearly refers to Christ, because he said, uh, he quoted it in the synagogue at Nazareth, and said it refers to him, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good things to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Isaiah 11 says that spirit comes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, God's servant, within to give him everything he needs to do his work. And Isaiah 61 says this is what he will do by the spirit. This is the work. You see, how we, we learn all these things from different places, don't we? It's good to be able to, to fit them together. I have put my spirit within him and also upon him to send him forth to preach the gospel, to fulfil God's purposes of saving grace. So John, in John 3, verse 34, says of Christ that the Father does not give the Spirit without, gives the Spirit without, rather, gives the Spirit without limit, does not give the Spirit with limit. In other words, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, fully equipped by the third person, the Holy Spirit, to do the work and to fulfil the saving plan of the first person of God, the Father. And what is that plan? Well, we come to this last phrase in this, uh, ver this verse. Justice. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles or the nations. I want to say more about the nations and the Gentiles, uh, God willing, next week. Um, where it speaks also of the coastlands there in verse 4. But just to say, I think this is one of these passages where 
You have passages in the Old Testament which speak of great blessings. And then when you come to the New Testament, you find some of them are expanded upon. The blessing is more because it couldn't possibly be understood even by the prophet and his hearers. God gives hints which he fulfills out in the New Testament. And I think that's true here. That if someone heard he would bring justice to the Gentiles, well, some some of Isaiah's hearers and people reading the this prophecy subsequently before Jesus came might even have thought what it means is he is going to come and judge the Gentiles, and it's very negative. But even if people thought more positively, they would think it's it, it means that here are these Gentiles who do not know God's law, and He's going to impose it upon them, and He's going to make them act justly. Uh, but I think there's more to it than that, isn't there? When we look at it from a New Testament perspective, we read that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The ultimate justice is that God's justice is satisfied through Christ so that we are declared righteous in Christ. And uh, you can't get that out of this phrase on its own, but in the light of the New Testament, I think you do get it there. And all the blessings, you can translate the word justice as righteousness, can't you, to the Gentiles, it's the same word. Uh, Sometimes one, sometimes the other is a better translation. The righteousness of Christ uh, coming to the nations, not just to the Jews. That's one of Isaiah's main themes, one of the main things that was revealed by by God through Isaiah, wasn't it? Uh, that God's blessings are not just for, for Israel, they're for the nations. So I want to speak more on that like, next week. But I hope what we've said this week is really enough just to, uh, to raise us up again, to raise up our hearts in praising the Lord, in seeing the wonder of the, the Son of God, the elect one in, whom's God's soul's de- in whom God's soul delights, coming and being a servant and dying on the cross for us, and all the blessings that flow from that. And God willing, we'll come back and look at those more next week.